Welcome to this podcast on the trial of Jesus Christ. Over the next seven lectures, I will draw you into a study of one of the greatest trials in history. A great deal of scholarship has gone into the relatively few words that describe the legal process employed to try and convict a Jewish rabbi whose followers for 2,000 years since then have regarded as the eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh to dwell and to die among us. My goal is to introduce you to some of this scholarship, to unpack it for you, to let you appreciate the difficulty and reward of parsing biblical texts. Believers and non-believers, I think, will at least find the subject fascinating because history offers us great insights into passages that are often short and cryptic. But I also think, or at least I hope, that believers will come to see deeper meanings and significance in the details addressed, and in the end, will grow in faith and love for the one who is at the central focus of this event. If that occurs, I will have regarded this endeavor as success. For as long as there have been trials, for as long as we've been interested in them, a trial, generally speaking, is a test of some kind. And generally speaking, we are interested in tests, especially when the test involves someone other than ourselves. The gist of a legal trial is that somebody is claiming that some other person has violated some rule of law and that somebody needs to prove that violation to somebody else. Trials come in all kinds of types and procedures, whether in primitive tribal settings or downtown Manhattan courtrooms. But they still share the same notion. They still ask the same question. Did somebody do something that requires justice to be administered? We humans are interested in that process. Was the great teacher Socrates guilty of impiety against the gods and of corrupting the young? The state of Athens said he was. They put him on trial, convicted him, and punished him by death with a drink of hemlock. Was a 19-year-old peasant girl who led a French army to victory over an English army in 1429 guilty of heresy and sorcery? The English allies said she was. They put her on trial, convicted her, burned her at the stake, and made her become St. Joan of Arc. Transcript of her trial remains of interest to this day. So does the trial of Thomas More, tried, convicted, and put to death by his former good friend, King Henry VIII. And then there are the many trials of modern American history, the 1925 Scopes trial over whether Darwin could be taught in public schools, the Nuremberg trials where Nazis were tried for crimes against humanity, the trials of O.J. Simpson and of Rodney King. People want to know, did they violate the law? was a just decision reached. But even when people aren't famous, the rest of us still enjoy watching others on trial. Judge Judy now presides over 25 years of televised court seasons, and the people on it are neither famous nor interesting, but their trials are. At least up until 1860, visitors would pay to watch trials at the Old Bailey, the venerable old criminal court in the West End of London, and they would howl and yell from the gallery to add to the flavor of the proceedings. So for Christians, and even non-Christians, the trial of Jesus Christ may be the most interesting trial in history. Some 2,000 years ago, in a city founded by Jews and ruled by Romans, an itinerant rabbi, praised by some and hated by others, was put on trial and condemned to death because of his new teachings. What was he charged with? Who charged him? Who convicted him? Was he guilty of the crimes charged? Was he given a fair trial? or trials, as we shall see. Over the course of seven lectures, 
I'm going to walk you through these questions and unpack the many fascinating details that scholars have wrestled with over time. Lecture 2 will cover details regarding the background and arrest of Jesus, how it was done, why it was done, and who was at the Garden of Gethsemane to nab him. Lectures 3 and 4 will cover the first of Jesus' trials, the Jewish trial before the Sanhedrin, taking time to understand what the Sanhedrin was, why it was important, what authority it had, and what we know or what we don't know about the trial procedures it operated under. Lecture 5 will cover Pontius Pilate. Who was he? Why was he putting Jesus on trial? What process was he employing? What political pressures was he under? We'll cover Jesus' hearing before him in Lecture 6. Finally, Jesus' trial came with a sentence. We will walk through historical details regarding the crucifixion too in our last lecture, Lecture 7. And along with that, we'll cover an issue that you may not have known about. On what day was Jesus crucified? I'm not talking about what day of the week. We all agreed it was a Friday. Well, most of us anyhow. Good Friday is what we call it. But what calendar day did it occur on? You'd think that's clear, right? Shouldn't we be able to just calculate back to the Passover it occurred on? Well, that's the problem, to give you a little prelude of what we'll cover. Passover, we commonly assume, was on Thursday night, because that's when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper. Well, not according to the Gospel of John. John is crystal clear that Passover was Friday night, the night that closed Jesus' death. So, which day was Passover? Thursday night or Friday night? Well, that's where you'll find considerable debate among scholars, and so we'll wrestle with those same details too, again in Lecture 7. But first, I owe you an explanation of who I am and why I have the chutzpah to be talking to you, much less anybody, about this. First of all, I'm an attorney, which doesn't amount much, because there are some 1.3 million lawyers in the United States right now, and I'm only one of them. I could say, hey, I'm smart, and I've studied this stuff a lot. But that wouldn't mean anything, because there are all kinds of people who actually are smart, and who actually have read a lot of stuff in this area, but that doesn't mean it's worth listening to what they have to say either. I don't teach. I don't have a professorship somewhere, which is actually liberating to me. I'm not beholden to any school of thought or fellow faculty members. I can say what I want and not care a whit what anyone thinks of me, whether I'll be granted tenure, get promoted to department chair, or be invited to speak at the next university soiree. So why am I doing this? Real simple. I think the subject's interesting. And I'm vain enough to think that if I think if something's interesting, then other people will think it's interesting too. Thankfully, I've been giving talks to a fair number of groups over the last 20 years, and people tell me they do think it's interesting, so I thought it might be worth it to make this information accessible to more people. I do want to recognize a friend who got me interested in this subject long ago. Dan Cheely, a brilliant lawyer from Chicago, who used to run a brown bag luncheon on church history out of his law firm. Dan is a Princeton undergrad, Harvard Law School, big firm attorney, who has a way of making history come alive through lecture. And one day during Lent, he gave us a historical sampler about the trial of Jesus. I was hooked. It was one of those aspects of Jesus' life and passion I had completely overlooked. We focus on the Last Supper, the agony in the garden, the way of the cross. But what happened in between? What happened in between Gethsemane and the Via Dolorosa? Lots. 
lots stated in very few words, but lots. I then discovered that lots of scholars have spent lots of time going over those very few words, unpacking them, explaining them, scoring them up against whatever other details we know from history to get some sense about what happened or what didn't happen. And not surprisingly, when you get lots of scholars spending lots of time focused on a few small things, you're going to get lots of controversy and debate too. I actually like that. It's not because I'm a lawyer that I like that. In fact, I really hate arguing for argument's sake. I like that because controversy and debate leads to truth. Iron sharpens iron, as the good book says, and faith follows reason. At least my faith does. I'll talk about what scholars divide over as we go through this. But before we launch into our subject, I'd first like to make a preliminary comment, and it concerns a deeply troubling and historically persistent issue, anti-Semitism. It's a sad and undeniable fact that throughout the centuries, Jews have been persecuted for the death of Christ. And some of that persecution has come at the hands of the church throughout history. One of the good things about modern times is we can look back with clarity and see things we shouldn't have done. It applies to us in our personal lives and applies to us in our institutions. And for that reason, we have such important figures as John Paul II, who apologized for the many acts of persecution that have come at the hands of church leaders and church members over the centuries and to have asked forgiveness for those acts. In my estimation, this is really one of the best times in history for the development of good relations between Christians and Jews and I want to do everything to see those good relations flourish. I realize there are some individuals who are of many different religious and non-religious stripes that do not want any attention called to the trial of Jesus because they think it foments discord in those relations. I'm very sensitive to those concerns, and I've always been quick to invoke what the Second Vatican Council said about any treatment of the passion and death and trial of Jesus Christ, and I'm quick to invoke that same exhortation now that what happened in those events, quote, cannot be charged against all the Jews without distinction then alive, nor against the Jews of today, end quote. Sadly, through time, many have needed to be reminded of this plain fact, and it's one I wish to emphasize today. And the reason why we have to keep reminding ourselves of this plain fact is that anti-Semitism is a historically enduring problem, and it is sadly, and even bizarrely, very much alive today. We must oppose it and all forms of it as a sin against God and nature and humanity. So please, please, when we talk about what, quote, the Jews did at the time of Jesus, please understand that I mean nothing whatsoever derogatory about the Jewish people and that I'm using this reference like scholars and historians do in its very limited historical context. And for all Christians listening to this, never ever forget these two things. One, the Jews were and remain God's chosen people. When God consecrates something to himself forever, it means forever. Number two, we are all responsible for the death of Christ. That means you, that means me. If his passion and death was a grave injustice, just remember that you are the cause of that injustice. Let's talk about our sources of information on the trial of Jesus. We start with the Bible itself, because that's where we get most of the information on it. With the trial of Socrates 400 years before this, we get to thank his disciple, Plato, for that information. 
And so with the trial of Jesus, we get to thank several disciples of Jesus for that information. But our thanks is a bit tempered because of the paucity of information they gave us. There are only 4,479 words in the entire Passion narrative, starting from the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to Pilate's sentence of him to death. 4,479 words, that is. If you take the translation from the Revised Standard Version, give or take, I don't know, a couple hundred words counted by other translations. But 4,500 words is all you get to mine the details about Jesus' rest, his trial before the Sanhedrin, and his proceedings before Pontius Pilate. That's shorter than any feature story in a Sunday morning magazine insert. This tells us a couple of things. First, it tells us that the gospel writers really didn't care all that much about the details of the two trials. They were concerned with the story of salvation, and the details they give us about the trial are kind of nothing in comparison with that. Second, the scant details they give us about Jesus' trial tell us that they meant those details to be taken seriously. They didn't add them for no purpose. They were purposeful. In fact, they were part and parcel of the story of salvation, although clearly of secondary, even passing importance. That means we get to take them seriously too. And that's what scholars have done with painstaking inquiry over time. We have texts from each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, plus some snippets in the Acts of the Apostles and other New Testament writings. If you think you can line them all up and get a trial transcript out of them, well, you can't. You'll have something interesting, but not conclusive. And the reason why you won't get anything conclusive has nothing to do with the details provided, but because of the Gospels themselves. Each of the Gospels has a different audience, a different tone, and you don't need to be a scholar to figure that out. Some mention some details, other mention other details, and we can't quite get a seamless account out of them. In the second century, an Assyrian named Tatian thought it'd be nice if we put all four Gospels into one Gospel, so we wouldn't have the irritation of dealing with the four different accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Christ. The church carefully considered and then firmly rejected his nice work. They said they'd rather have four different accounts in spite of whatever seeming inconsistencies existed between them, because those accounts were true accounts and divinely inspired. There's a prominent evangelical pastor who's tried to pick up where Tatian left off, and he's written what he thinks is an accurate chronological account of the four Gospels. It's quite a popular book, and I'm not going to name it for you, but I dare say his attempt would not meet with any more favor of the church today than Tatian did in the second century. The good fellow is missing the point, Gospels were written for different audiences, for different purposes, and those accounts can't be stacked up and put in an exact common order in relation to each other. So you get these differences. Gospel of Matthew was written to the Jews of his time, trying to show them that the prophecies of old applied to Jesus, and that in relation to the passion and trial, Jesus was the suffering servant who acquiesced to the pers persecution put on him. Thus, when you think of the account of the trial in Matthew, Matthew wants you to be thinking of how and why Jesus was the lamb led to the slaughter, an innocent victim making atonement for the sins of all. That gives you one very distinct picture of Jesus as you proceed through the trial. But the Gospel of John gives you a very different picture. John was writing to early Christians who had no real interest in prophecies. His audience was interested 
in hearing how the Word of God was made flesh and how this Word of God laid down his own life of his own free will. John then mentions other details, including details about Jesus' trial that the other Gospel writers did not include. For example, John records conversations between Jesus and Pilate that none of the other Gospels record. When you read John's account, you are not to think of Jesus as the suffering servant or the lamb being led to the slaughter. You are led to think of him as the Lord of the world in full control of the actions around him and yet voluntarily enduring them for the sake of his lost sheep. These two pictures are both different and both true. And that shouldn't bother any of us because we all have the experience of seeing that we can have different perspectives on the same thing and that the thing itself doesn't change, but our perspectives on it sure might. If you want to read a masterful treatment of how to unite these different perspectives into a common perspective, but without insisting on a unified narrative, there's some really fine works that do this. Archbishop Fulton Sheen's The Life of Christ, or To Know Christ Jesus by Frank Sheed, or more recently, the trilogy on Jesus of Nazareth by Pope Benedict XVI. Now we could talk for hours about how to regard whatever differences exist between the gospel accounts, but that would go beyond our limited scope here. Suffice it to say that theologians remind us that we need to be careful in putting together exact chronologies from these four accounts, if we can even do it at all, because different words, different purposes exist in relation to them. Let's get back to the sources. There are two Jewish writings that have lots of details about how the Jews conducted trials. First is the Mishnah. The Mishnah is an edited record of the complex body of material known as Oral Torah. The Torah, of course, being the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Oral Torah consisted of the Halakot, or laws as they were known, that got worked out over history to answer questions raised by the written Torah. It was the latter part of the second century when a Rabbi Judah the Patriarch and Yehuda Hanasi undertook to put these together in one document and preserve them for the ages, becoming, as one commentator puts it, quote, a document that describes a life of sanctification in which the rituals of the temple are adapted for communal participation in a world that has no temple, which escapes the ups and downs of history, end quote. It's not a code of Jewish law. It's a study book of law that includes a whole variety of opinions from Jewish sages over the ages to help train other sages in thinking through the legal issues that inform Jewish law. So, for example, the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 12 commands, Observe the Sabbath day. The Mishnah specifies 39 categories of forbidden labor which are prohibited by this commandment, subsuming dozens of other kinds of labor under these 39 headings. Another example. The Torah commands in Deuteronomy chapter 8, When you eat and are satisfied, give thanks to your God for the good land which he has given you. End quote. Now the Mishnah spells out specific blessings to be recited before and after each kind of food, and what to do if the wrong blessing is recited by mistake. And here's an example of something we hear about all the time, but never really think about what it means. The written law in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, demands, quote, an eye for an eye. I had this image that ancient Jews would round up an offending party, tie him down, and gouge his eye out. That's not what they did. 
thanks to the oral Torah. They said, quite reasonably, and especially quite reasonably when compared against their peers of ancient times, that the verse must be understood as requiring monetary compensation. The value of an eye is what must be paid. Rabbis studied the Mishnah over time, and their discussions and commentaries began to be compiled into a series of books known as the Talmud. The Talmud is to be regarded as a study of the Mishnah, which is what the word Talmud literally means, study. When the rabbis of Palestine collected their commentaries on the Talmud in about the year 400, it became known as the Palestinian Talmud. And when the rabbis of Babylon collected their commentaries on the Talmud, about 100 years after that, that version became known as the Babylonian Talmud. And that version, because it was larger, ended up becoming the more authoritative version between the two and what is typically referred to as the Talmud today. There was another part to the Talmud that worked its way into it over time, and it's called the Gemara, which comes from the Aramaic root meaning teaching. And it includes both legal material and stories in what is sometimes described as a stream of consciousness fashion filled with meaningful tangents and digressions. Sadly, I'm only skimming the surface here, but you need to be familiar with these works in at least some general fashion, and I hope I can be forgiven for writing so quickly through what is regarded as the central text for rabbinic Judaism and the primary source of Jewish religious law and Jewish theology. A quick interesting side note of history because you may be wondering why anything good could come out of Babylon, the oppressors of the Jewish people. Actually, it was because Babylon ended up being, thanks to the Persian king Cyrus, who we'll talk about in a moment, a most hospitable foreign ruler to the Jews. And many Jews stayed there after the Babylonian exile, making it the second largest Jewish population outside of Jerusalem in the first century. But here's the point of both the Talmud and the Mishnah that you really need to know going forward. They were produced by a rival faction of Jews that were not ruling at the time of Jesus. I want you to remember this one date, 70 AD. Keep it in mind. In 70 AD, the Romans sacked Jerusalem. They laid siege, they attacked, and they killed nearly everyone within the city walls. Some estimate that a million or more were killed, and stories reported that the streets were filled ankle-deep in blood. It was a horrible event and the sacred city of God was destroyed. And with that destruction came the dispersion of the Jews. The Jews relocated to places like Alexandria and to Greece and to other places around the Mediterranean. And when they reestablished themselves, they did so without the ruling class of Jews that existed in Jerusalem, the Sadducees. We'll talk more about them in just a minute, but you need to know this. The Sadducees were the ones who had drawn up the rules and trial procedures that the Jews used before 70 AD. After that time, the Sadducees ceased to exist, and with them went their rules and procedures. Instead, their rival class, the Pharisees, took over, and they are the ones who produced the Mishnah and the Talmud and the descriptions of trial procedures you will find in both of these sacred writings. So, yes, you'll find lots of details about how Jewish trials were conducted in the Mishnah and the Talmud, but there is no reliable evidence to indicate that these same details applied to trials conducted in around 30 AD at the time of Jesus. In fact, scholars have given lots of good reasons to explain why these procedures did not apply to trials at the time of Jesus in first century Jerusalem. And to understand those differences, you really need to understand the differences between the Sadducees, 
who created their own rules and procedures when they were in charge of rulemaking, and the Pharisees, who were not in charge of rulemaking before 70 AD, and who became in charge of rulemaking after this period. Let's talk a little bit about these two groups, because they're going to come up later and we really need to know how very different they were. And to understand these two groups, we need to go just back a bit and talk about Jewish history up to this point. So, we start with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Well, sort of. Let's just race forward through several epochs, shall we? From Adam to Noah to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to Moses to the Promised Land to Joshua to Samuel to Saul, the first king of the Jews, and to David, the great king of the Jews, and David's establishment of that kingdom in Jerusalem in, say, about 1000 BC. Are you with me? Good. David's son Solomon builds the first temple in Jerusalem, and then things start to go downhill. You have good kings and bad kings, and then somewhere around 581 or 597 BC, scholars vary on the exact dates, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem and carries off all the Jews and their belongings to Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq, where the Jews remained for about 50, 60, 70 years or so, until a Persian king, Cyrus the Great, conquers Babylon and lets the Jews return to Jerusalem in 539 BC. This period is known as the Babylonian Exile, and it's a defining point in Jewish history for many reasons. We'll return to this period in our third lecture, where we will talk about the restoration of the Jewish Sanhedrin and its significance at the time of Jesus. After the Babylonian Exile, the Jews attempt to rebuild Jerusalem, a long and painful process known as the Second Temple Period. That period ran from 516 BC through the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And it was during this, this same period that a class of priests and leaders rose to power who took a name that seems derived from Zadok. Zadok, the great high priest during the reign of David and Solomon. You're probably more familiar with Zadok because George Friedrich Handel wrote an anthem in his name for the coronation of King George II in 1727. And it's been played at every English coronation since then, and probably every movie or TV show that has the king or queen of England in it. But sometime after the Maccabees revolted in 164 BC, and after the Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem about 100 years later in 63 BC, a class of Jewish leaders rose up who wanted to broker a kind of peace with the Romans and who were in turn given freedom to be in charge of the temple and its practices. They were the aristocrats, the wealthy class of high social status, who wanted to draw their lineage back to Zadok. Zadok is how we can pronounce it, and they became known as the Sadducees, which might be easier to understand if we just called them Zadokses, even though they really didn't have much in common with Zadok apart from his formalities. These people were mediators, as it were, between the Jews and the Romans, taking charge of the temple, its maintenance, and, shall we say, the income the temple began to generate, which, of course, is one of the reasons why they became the wealthy class. They'd collect taxes, pay them to the Romans, they represented the Jewish people in international relations. They regulated relations with the Romans. And they participated in the Sanhedrin, which we'll talk about more later. These kinds of worldly things they cared about were also reflected in their lack of religious beliefs. They accepted the Torah as the sole source of divine authority, and especially its depiction of the priesthood and the powers of that priesthood. They did not, however, believe in any afterlife 
life after death, as we say. They saw no rewards or punishments after death, but just a place of darkness to which all the dead go, Sheol. Do not think for a minute that the Sadducees got along well with that other class of Jewish leaders that are familiar to us, the Pharisees. They did not get along well. The Pharisees most emphatically accepted the Torah as the source of divine authority, but they had also developed, in rather meticulous and extraordinary detail over the past several hundred years, the oral Torah that we discussed earlier. Sadducees, however, rejected the oral Torah. And you can imagine what effect that had on those who embraced the oral Torah and lived their lives by it. How dare you disregard the law of our fathers and the law of Hashem, you power-hungry, traitorous, sellout, non-believers. Yes, non-believers. That was another thing that rankled the Pharisees. You get a real clear picture of that rankling in the Acts of the Apostles when Paul is hauled before the Sanhedrin to account for his actions and proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah they should all be worshiping. In the middle of the proceedings, Paul breaks out with his taunt in so many words. Look, the only reason why you people are persecuting me is because I believe in life after death. Then a very curious thing happened. Sadducees and the Pharisees got in a huge argument, as is recounted. It's not hard to imagine how the fracas went. Paul makes that taunt, the Sadducees deny it, and some may have doubled down and said, Yeah, that's right, you blasphemer Saul. You have no business in telling people about life after death. To which, you can imagine, some Pharisee probably stood up with righteous indignation and shouted, What's wrong with telling people about life after death, you pig dogs who have perverted our law and teach the people all kinds of falsehoods? And then as we say, game on. Paul turns his head from one side of the room to the other and back. And as the temperature in the room increases and tempers start flaring, Paul decides now would be a good time to slip out the back door. And he does to safety. But the point of the story is to remind us of the simmering relations that existed between the Sadducees and Pharisees even at the time of Jesus. And the point is to get us back to our main point here. We simply can't assume that what the Pharisees thought were fair for trial proceedings were the same things that the Sadducees thought were fair for trial proceedings. They had very different ideas of fairness, and they probably had very different ideas about what were fair trial proceedings. To give you some idea about how different the Pharisees saw themselves from the Sadducees, consider how they treated something as straightforward as capital punishment. When the Sadducees thought somebody had committed a capital crime, they didn't particularly care how it was carried out, but the Pharisees did. They stipulated that hot molten metal should be poured down the throat of the convict. Sounds utterly horrible, doesn't it? Actually, it was seen as an act of mercy because the Pharisees were convinced in the resurrection of the body and then your body would be raised whole. And they had a problem with dismemberment, head chopping, burning, anything that would risk impairing the integrity of the body for purposes of the resurrection. Molten liquid poured down your throat would not so impair that integrity. And so that was preferable. Stoning, of course, is permitted for the same reason too, but that typically takes longer as more painful and also presents problems with the body. So here's the point of all this you need to understand. Most scholars are careful to observe that whatever trial process the Pharisees recognized in the mission in Talmud some 100 years or so after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD cannot be assumed to have existed before 70 AD. I think it's important to appreciate this point. I'm taking time to explain it because 
you'll find lots of people saying lots of stuff about what happened or what should have happened at the trial of Jesus. And almost all of it is based on an assumption that what the Mishnah and Talmud said about trial process applied at the time of Jesus some 150 or so years earlier, when the Sadducees were in charge and when the Pharisees were not. Imagine some future historian trying to figure out what the parliamentary rules of Congress looked like at the time of the Whigs in the 1850s by looking at the rules in Congress today. You might have some idea about what kind of rules the Whigs followed, but we really can't say, in fact, we have pretty good reason not to say, that the procedures were the same. Some rules might have been the same, some not, and scholars have tried to argue which were which. But right now, it's more speculation than history, and maybe someday, somewhere, someone will find some old scrolls that discuss how first century Jews conducted trials. But we don't have those now, and so we don't have a firm understanding of what they normally did back then. In fact, some might say, we really don't have any understanding of what they normally did back then, and it's hard to quibble with that observation. So we were talking about sources for information on the trial of Jesus. Besides the gospel accounts, and besides some Mishnah and Talmudic references, there are really only a handful of other sources that historians look to. Foremost is the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus lived between 37 and 90 AD, and he wrote two long and important histories, the Jewish War and the Antiquities of the Jews. They have lots of interesting details concerning the life and times in first century Jerusalem. But there's one major problem historians have had with Josephus. He was a Jewish turncoat. He had been a Jewish general who had pleaded with his fellow Jews not to antagonize Rome. When he could see the inevitable massacre coming, he switched sides and then, to curry favor with his new friends, wrote histories intended to please them. So relying on Josephus is a bit like relying on some history of the American Revolution written by Benedict Arnold. Some things he says we have to take with a grain of salt, and I'll give you an example of one later. For those confirmed skeptics who doubt whether any trial of Jesus actually took place, we commend them to the snippets of writings from authors who so referred to that trial, like from the ancient Roman historian and senator Tacitus, who in 116 AD wrote about a persecution that broke out in Rome under the Emperor Nero in July 64 AD. His account is a kind of backhanded reference to the trial when, in describing Nero's attempt to blame on Christians a citywide fire Nero probably started himself, said, quote, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians, by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind, end quote. So, there you go. His reference to a Christus, who suffered, quote, the extreme penalty. Note his aversion to using the term crucifixion. We'll talk about that later when we cover the history of crucifixion. The penalty of crucifixion was so gruesome that it was not generally discussed. You avoided thinking about it as much as possible. And when you did refer to it, you referred to it euphemistically, 
something like Tacitus did as the extreme penalty. But the important point in this passage is that Tacitus corroborated a clear detail regarding the trial as historical fact. It occurred during the reign of Tiberius and at the hands of, quote, one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Then there's a snippet of a letter from a Syrian known as Mara Bar Serapion to his son in 73 AD. He laments how the Athenians put Socrates to death, how the men of Samos put Pythagoras to death, and how bad consequences came to both nations. He then says, quote, What advantage did the Jews gain from ex executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished, end quote. Of course, none of these snippets tell us anything about the trial. They're just historical markers to point to the existence of some trial itself. I'd like to also talk briefly about what we call, quote, non-historical sources, namely those from holy visionaries, two of the most popular of whom are Anne Catherine Emmerich and Mary of Agreda. Both of these extraordinary women had extraordinary visions of the passion of Christ, including his trial. Anne Catherine Emmerich was born in 1774 in a farming community in Westphalia, Germany. In 1802, she became an Augustinian nun where she became quite sickly and eventually bedridden for most of her life until her death in 1824 at age 49. For the last five years of her life, she was reported to have had divine revelations of the Passion of Jesus Christ, which were transcribed and then published after her death in 1833 by the German poet Clemens Brentano under the title, The Dolorous Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ According to the Meditations of Anne Catherine Emmerich. The account reads like a movie version of the Passion. And in fact, Mel Gibson used several scenes from that book in his controversial and blockbuster movie, The Passion of the Christ. Recall that scene when the guards were roughing up Jesus so much coming back from Gethsemane that they knocked him over the bridge and he hung by chains? Or that grisly scene at the crucifixion when the guards were nailing Jesus' limbs to the cross and they flipped it over and banged the nails over on the other side? These were images from the book and supposedly from what Anne Catherine Emmerich saw. They're not in the Gospels. They're not supported by history. So we can't say they happened, even if they make, for nice imagery. Moreover, in 2004, the Vatican conducted an investigation into the authenticity of Brentano's work and concluded that it was far from certain whether Anne Catherine Emmerich ever detailed such visions, and they may have been the fictional work of Brentano himself. On the other hand, one of the visions he recorded resulted in the actual identification of the real house of the Virgin Mary in Ephesus by Abbe Julien Goyet, a French priest, some 50 years later in 1881. So who knows? All I can say is that I've read the book several times. I found nothing that I think necessarily contradicts the Gospels or historical record. In fact, there's one detail I'll talk about in our last lecture that actually supports a theory on what happened at the trial, the absence of which has led to a great deal of speculation and uncertainty. Namely, as I mentioned before, was Jesus celebrating the Passover meal on Passover. And then there's the other popular work of a sainted visionary, Mary of Agreda's Mystical City of God. She too recounts details of the passion and trial in movie-like detail that again is intriguing and moving. Born in 1602, Mary of Agreda was, not surprisingly, from Agreda, Spain, and of Jewish descent, and who became abbess of a Franciscan convent where she lived a life of great austerity and prayer. From that experience, she wrote an enduring account of the terrestrial and heavenly life, 
which included details on the passion and death of Jesus, including details of his trials. She died in 1665 at the age of 63, and for some reason, I'm not sure why, her casket was opened in 1909 and her body was found to be incorrupt. They closed it up and then opened it again in 1989, where Spanish physicians found her body in the same state, without corruption. Go ahead, you can look up pictures of it on the internet. The incorruptibility of saints is just beyond our scope here, though. So, visions by Anne Catherine Emmerich or Mary of Agreda may very rightly help us contemplate details of our Lord's Passion. They aren't essential. In fact, they aren't really supplemental, because you'd have to explain supplemental to what. And the what here is authoritative, if you accept it as divinely inspired. But if you find them fruitful for contemplation, please keep in the back of your mind that even the visions of canonized saints can be subject to error or distortion. You get problems with whether they accurately perceived something, whether they accurately recalled what they perceived, whether they recalled whatever they recalled was transcribed correctly. Lost in translation, as they say. It can happen to our beloved saints, too. There are other sources that historians like to look to in checking historical details. Ever heard of the Gospel of Peter? How about the Gospel of Nicodemus, which includes the Acts of Pilate? No, I didn't think so. These are works that popped up in the 4th century, and which early on the church decided were non-canonical. That is, they are not divinely inspired and not contemporaneous with the time of the apostles. But they're interesting because they may have preserved some traditions and details that were handed down over the intervening two or three hundred years, like the name for Jesus' grandmother, Anne. Yes, Mary's mother is not named in the Gospels, but we get her name, Anne, from these sources. We might as well call her Anne, because Jesus surely had a grandmother, and she surely had a name, and Anne is as good a name as any, and Grandpa Joachim as well. But details of Jesus' trials? Hard to say. Better to use some circumspection with them, and so I won't be drawing on them in our discussion here. Finally, before we plunge into our subject, I think it's important for you to understand the overall scholarship in this area and what we're to make of it. Everyone has biases, so to speak. I've got biases, you've got biases, and I want you to understand mine as we proceed through this material. As I mentioned, there's been a great deal written on the trial of Jesus on a whole host of issues and from a whole host of perspectives. There are two sources in particular I'd commend to you for your reading if you wish to dive into the scholarship too. The first is The Trial of Jesus, published in 1959 by the German theologian Joseph Blinzler. Blinzler was among the first to dive headlong into the text of Scripture and to stake out certain positions about what happened, what didn't happen, and what may have happened. But it's good, dense reading. The second is bigger and denser and probably the most exhaustive, formidable work on the subject yet. The Death of the Messiah, published in 1994 by the American Catholic theologian Father Raymond Brown. Before I go on, I want to say a word about Father Brown in case some of you might be familiar with him. If you're not familiar with him and you're interested in the trial of Jesus, then you really need to know about him. Father Brown was a Roman Catholic priest and a prominent biblical scholar who was Professor Emeritus at the Union Theological Seminary in New York, where he was one of the first Catholic scholars to apply the historical critical method to the Bible. More on that method in a moment. But Father Brown got a checkered reputation in some traditional theological circles because of a position he took in the 1970s when he concluded in a scholastic work called The Birth of the Messiah 
that Mary's virginity could not be proven from the text of Scripture using the historical critical method. Now, Father Brown was quick to say that he accepted that doctrine as a matter of tradition. But as you can imagine, all kinds of people jumped on his conclusion and rammed that against the faces of 2,000 years of believers. Subsequent analysis by other scholars, I think, has corrected Father Brown on that conclusion. But that hasn't left a lot of people feeling very good about him after he seemed to have given credence to a view regarded by many, including the Roman Catholic Church itself, as heretical. But in 1994, towards the end of his life, he died four years later, Father Brown wrote a monumental scholastic work called The Death of the Messiah, where he, again, employed the historical critical method, but this time to analyze the passion narratives of the four Gospels in extraordinary detail, canvassing virtually every scholastic commentary up to that point on every detail of the passion and death of Jesus, including the Jewish trial and Roman trial of Jesus Christ, in a two-volume set covering 1,609 pages. The work, I think, is extraordinary, even if there are many things one might question in it, and it's an indispensable resource in trying to understand what happened during the two trials of Jesus. Let me just stop for a minute, though, and offer what we can call an extended footnote on the so-called historical critical method and what it offers and what it doesn't offer in considering the details of Scripture generally and the trial of Jesus in particular. I don't want to get too deep in discussing this method because it's very messy and has lots of different meanings and nuances. The essence of the method is this, although I'm sure plenty of adherents would take issue even with this description. It's a method by which one tries to determine the meaning of words used according to the historical context of those same words. Let me say it again. It's a method by which one tries to determine the meaning of words used according to the historical context of those same words. Now, on its face, that description doesn't seem terribly controversial. Why would we not want to know the meaning of words used according to the historical context in which they're used? The authors of each of the biblical texts were certainly using words to convey some meaning to others reading or hearing those words. So wouldn't we want to know what those authors meant when they use those words? Well, of course we do. And you'll find no quibble with that notion as far back in church history as you want to go. As the church fathers and Jewish rabbis were quite interested in interpreting the words of Scripture as accurately as possible, going to enormous lengths to preserve exact details from one transcription to the next through veritable Xerox machines in the form of humans. That notion, however, contained one critical presupposition. Whatever words the author was using were the words of God, and they were therefore inerrant. Sometime in the 19th century, although you'll certainly find authors before then pushing the same, a number of Protestant theologians and pastors began questioning the inerrancy of Scripture and regarding the biblical accounts as myths that needed to be understood through historical context. Gone, then, are all the great figures of the Old Testament, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and so forth. Great stories, but you got to be kidding me. You can't quite underestimate the intellectual and spiritual divide that resulted from this thinking. For almost all of Christian history, including the turbulence of the Reformation, Christians believed that the Bible was the divine word of God. Then a bunch of elites started saying, no, it isn't. It's just a collection of myths written by ancient peoples who made up events that they wanted to believe in. Those are fighting words to believers, and those fighting words seem to have dominated the religious studies departments in most universities for much of the 20th century and through today. 
Into this divide comes the so-called historical critical method and its many permutations. At the risk of great oversimplification, you can distinguish between these many permutations by dividing them more or less into these same two teams on opposite sides of the field. On the one side of the field stands a team that thinks that the biblical accounts are mythical accounts, and many players on that team use the historical critical method in service of their team. They treat scripture as essentially non-historical and contend that the gospel writers wrote what they wrote not because it was historically true, but because they wanted to communicate certain things to certain people of their particular historical period. And they did so using certain words or descriptions to communicate those things. Under this perspective, you don't really know what actually happened by any of the gospel accounts, and you may or may not care what actually happened. But what's important is that you get the right teaching from it. As you might imagine, that approach doesn't sit well with the team on the other side of the field. That team thinks, following 2,000 years of Christian history, that the Bible is the Word of God, and that if it seems like it's conveying historical truth, then we should accept that it is conveying historical truth. So, if Jesus, for example, is said to have fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes, then he really did, somehow, multiply loaves and fishes. And this really wasn't some first century literary device to explain to people the importance of sharing food with each other. I've always been fond of Father Benedict Groeschel's quip, why would people think it's important enough to write about the time when everyone shared soggy fish sandwiches? In 1978, more than 200 evangelical leaders met in Chicago at a conference convened by the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, and they produced a statement called, not surprisingly, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. The statement essentially condemned the notion that scripture can be disregarded based on presuppositions over what really happened. The authors framed inerrancy not as blind literal interpretation, but they said, quote, History must be treated as history, poetry as poetry, hyperbole and metaphor as hyperbole and metaphor, generalization and approximation as what they are, and so forth." End quote. Its signers included many leaders I admire greatly, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, J.I. Packer, and Francis Schaeffer. Many observers have regarded this statement as consistent with the document of the Second Vatican Council, Verbum Dei, which is Latin for Word of God, which also affirmed biblical inerrancy and sought to put the variance of the historical critical method in proper perspective. This perspective of both Catholic and evangelical Protestant leaders helps frame a second approach to biblical interpretation in contrast to that first approach I just outlined with the team on the other side of the field. Under this second approach, the gospel accounts are regarded as historical accounts when they appear to present themselves as historical accounts. For this reason, you'll find plenty of scholars on this team who subscribe to the historical critical method who assume this approach too. Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI have both said there is much to profit from the historical critical method of biblical scholarship given this understanding. And under this approach, there is no question as to the inerrancy of scripture. The words are divinely inspired and consist of the Holy Word of God. Understanding history simply helps us understand the meaning of those words better. What makes this all confusing and difficult to sort out is that you have two teams, as I said, playing on opposite sides of the field who are each using the same kind of specialty players, historical critical theorists, to advance the team's position. 
and one of those teams thinks it's the only one allowed to have field goal kickers. There's also a tendency among adherents to the historical critical method, or methods, to think that one cannot be a theologian without being a historian, as if every theologian needs to also be a field goal kicker. Some would say they have declared themselves to be the high priest of scriptural interpretation, which is really problematic because interpretations will then change with the latest research paper, and historians alone must be the ones to mediate truths to us. Of course, plenty of other scholars see it differently, especially when they are scholars in what is known as systematic theology. Systematic theology studies scripture while investigating the development of Christian doctrine over the course of history, particularly through philosophy, ethics, social sciences, and even natural sciences. It takes note of such things as topical themes and cross-reference points, among others. One thing, for example, that I think is interesting, and it will come up in Lecture 6 on Jesus' trial before Pilate, it's called a chiastic structure. It refers to a literary technique that presents ideas in some kind of systematic structure. John does this with Jesus before Pilate, and he does this through the stagings of their conversations together, in and out of the Praetorium, with a wonderfully arresting image of Pilate being in the dark of the Praetorium, talking to the light of the world, and then going out to the patio where he's plunged into darkness, some six contrasting reference points. But I don't want to spoil anything. No amount or type of historical critical method will get you those kinds of insights. The Bible is not just history, it's theology, and so it's even more in the domain of the theologian, not the historian, although the theologian will rightly offer credit due to the historian. St. Thomas Aquinas is still regarded as the church's greatest theologian, and he was not known for employing the historical critical method. But he used history and aid of scripture at every opportunity he got. He would happily make use of field goal kickers. So let me return to Father Raymond Brown for just a minute as we close out our introduction here. For all his thoroughness in the death of the Messiah, Father Brown tends not to take sides when he details a dispute between scholars over an issue, scholars that could even be identified with one of the two approaches I outlined above. The Bible is inerrant group and the Bible as if who cares if it's inerrant group. Some see this as a Father Brown who is willing to give the devil his due, as it were. Some think Father Brown gives the devil more his due. I don't know what reasons or pressures kept Father Brown from being undecided, shall we say, agnostic on certain disputed points, collegiality with fellow scholars of all different shapes and sizes. I'll take your point seriously if you take my point seriously. I don't know. Academia is a very peculiar place with internecine fights over things you couldn't possibly imagine are important. I'm willing to give Father Brown the benefit of the doubt for the doubts he indulges in, but for my own part, I feel ready to plunge into conclusions he simply doesn't and won't. For what it's worth, this is my declared bias. I am a Roman Catholic. I regard the biblical accounts as inerrant accounts of Jesus' trial. I will outline points made by the historical critical method, and if you allow me, points of wider theological interest, and even a few personal musings along the way that I think accord with common sense. But my main goal here is to introduce you to the common themes and issues raised by the brief textual accounts we have of the trial of Jesus. After that, you can explore and decide on your own. So with these preliminaries, which I apologize for their somewhat dry nature, I promise you that the rest of this will not be so arid. Let's turn to the major scope of our subject, and in particular, the first phase of the trial of Jesus, namely his arrest. 
who decided to arrest him. On what grounds? Who in fact arrested him? Who was Annas and why was he taken to him first? Please join us for lecture two, The Arrest.